Welcome to Sermons of Grace with Pastor David Murphy of the Grace Baptist Church in Gambles Terrace, Antigua. Previously in our study of the Book of Romans, Pastor Murphy showed us some of the experiences that the believer has that can assure him of his eternal security. Today we'll see that the believer can know that he is secure because of God's infinite love for us. Romans chapter 5, and I'll be reading our text from verse number 6 to verse number 11 of Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5, reading from verse number 6. For when we were yet without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die. Yea, peradventure for a good man some would even dare to die. But God commendeth his love towards us. And that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more then, being now justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more being reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only so, but we also joy in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom we have received the atonement. Let's pray. Father, we come to your word. And we pray that you'll give us a holy awe as we approach your scripture. I pray, Father, as we contemplate this passage of scripture, that we would see the application of it to our own personal lives. Thank thee for the Apostle Paul spending such a thorough teaching on this matter of the certainty and security of the believer. Thank you for the arguments that he piles one upon another so that we may have a greater guarantee of our security. Lord, help us not to take these things lightly. Help us to understand the weightiness of your word. Help us to gird up the loins of our minds so that we would take hold of scripture, grasp scripture. And understand the implications and the ramifications of the scriptures that we study. These things are given to us for our edification, for our learning, for our understanding, for our comfort. They're designed to nourish up the spiritual man within. They're not only milk, but they're also meat. It, meets the believer who is young in the faith and growing, and the believer who is a senior person in the faith who needs solid meat. Would you help me now as I try to unravel the passage that we've read, as I try to extract from it so that the believers can really handle what the Apostle Paul is saying and appreciate the significance of what Paul says. Lord, we all have a tendency to read scripture, 
and having done our duty, uh, we don't ever really, really meditate and think on what the scripture really means. And so we, we never can really um, allow ourselves to grow in the faith as we should. I pray, Lord, that we would come to the point in life where we would really value the word. Help me to value the word. and Help me to value it by showing God's people that it, it needs to be studied. It needs to be examined. It needs to be applied. And I pray tonight you'll help me do the same as we look into this passage. Would you give us the capacity to think clearly, to, to concentrate, to forget all that is around us, Lord, to put away any thoughts that would distract us from your word, whether it is what we have to do this week at work, we didn't get the account settled, and we still have some other things that we need to do, whether it be, did I remember to turn off the stove? So many things could really distract us from your word. I pray tonight, Lord, that this would not be the case. I ask you to honor your word, bless your word, use your word, and through your word, strengthen your people for the challenges of life ahead. And above all, remind them constantly that we are not to live a life of uncertainty. That the glory of the Christian faith is that we know who we are, we know to whom we belong, and we know where we're going. Uh, it is this confidence that baffles the world and baffles religion that little understands the truth of Scripture. But may it be not said of us in this regard. So we commit ourselves to you and we ask for your blessing upon your word. In Christ's name, amen. When we look at verses 6 to 11, we're tempted to divorce these verses from the theme that Paul has been dealing with throughout this section of the Roman epistle. Sometimes we are tempted to treat something separately that ought to be taken together. And we've got to be very, very careful that we don't make the mistake of just chopping up Scripture without understanding there's a continuity to Scripture. Uh, Paul always had a very logical mind, a very rational mind, and Paul never just put something there without what he said before is connected to it and what comes after. The Apostle Paul himself ensures that we don't make this mistake because the Apostle Paul begins verse number 6 with the preposition for. And clearly, the preposition links what is going with what happened before. So Paul wants to understand that if we're going to understand this passage in its context and understand its full, deeper meaning, we've got to bear in mind what he's been saying in the previous verses. So what Paul is doing now, he's continuing something he's already begun. And he's trying to substantiate a truth and support an argument that he has been given previously. So as we begin to study verses 6 to 11, we must keep two things in mind as we, if we're going to grasp what Paul is saying here in this passage. Number one, we must keep in mind what is Paul's central theme from chapter 5 on to chapter 8. 
is one major theme that Paul is dealing with. And Paul's theme from chapter 5 to chapter 8 is about the, the finality and the certainty of the justified believer's ultimate salvation. This is what Paul is dealing with. This is what he starts in chapter 5 verse 1 and it runs right to the chapter 8. That's the theme that Paul is dealing with. The absolute certainty and surety of the believer's ultimate salvation. The second thing we need to remember as we begin to study this passage is that to support his argument, Paul gives us a list of reasons to establish the certainty and the finality of our salvation. The Apostle Paul is building a body of evidence that is so overwhelming that when you take this evidence collectively, you cannot ever doubt that you are eternally secure and absolute certain where you're going. And we need this kind of certainty. In a world that you don't know what's going to happen tomorrow, in a world of so much uncertainty, the Bible gives us surety and certainty, but it must be based on truth. And so Paul brings one argument after another. He says to us in verse number one that the believer is justified. That word justified me that God declares you as the moral uh, rule of the universe that you are no longer considered guilty. Your sins are pardoned and you are in God's family. You're justified. No longer can those sins be brought against you again. It's called double jeopardy. I cannot emphasize too much that um, O.J. Simpson, who had, was found guilty civilly, not criminally, for the murder of his wife and her boyfriend. And I think any of you that have seen the documentary, there's no question who killed who. But you know, even though they've got that kind of evidence, they can't touch him. He's already been declared not guilty. That in the courts of men and in a real sense, when God declares the sinner not guilty is justified, it means that those charges can no longer be brought against the sinner. And then Paul says, because of that we have peace with God. God is no longer at war with us. In verse number two, see, verse number one, sorry. And then thirdly, Paul says we have access to grace. And then in verse number two, he said we have the hope of glory. And then Paul says about the love of God shed abroad in our hearts. We have the experiential knowledge of God's love being spread abroad in our hearts. And I, I mentioned to you that this is related to when we're going through tribulation. That there, we can have this subjective experience when we're going through times of trial. That God, we, it's an overwhelming sense. It's not that you go to the Bible and just see that God loves you. But when you're going through trials... The Holy Spirit comes in and so floods your heart with God's love that you know God with certainty that you never knew even before you were going through trial. This is what Paul talks about. It's called the subjective experience of God's love. Now something happened when Paul talked about God's love in verse number 5. About the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts. Uh, in the moment... Paul mentions God love, it triggers in Paul's mind and he wants now us to realize the deeper, fuller, greater extent of this love in terms of the believer. And that is why the word love is mentioned in verse 5 and now in chapter 6 he begins to elaborate so we will understand the depth of this love, the greatness of this love, the fullness of this love. 
and the deepness of this love. And that's what we have now in these verses. So Paul is now going to bring another argument. It's not now subjective love that we will experience during our tribulation. Paul is going to talk about God's objective love for us. And Paul is going to prove that God's love was such that when he first extended that love to us, the type of people we were, if God showed love to the type of people we were before we got saved, Paul's argument is, how can we ever think that having found us in the state we were in and saved us and made us as true, how can we ever think that God would now turn away his love from us? This is his argument. If he loved you when you were in the marketplace of sin, in the depths of depravity, and he took you out and made you a son, Paul said, now, this is the assurance and certainty because his love for you as a son cannot be anything less than his love for you when you were a sinner. So Paul's argument now is clearly that we can know that we are absolutely secure and certain about our salvation because of the infinite love that God has for us in all his depth and height and all his majesty and his glory. And Paul will begin to now work that out in more detail. So when we come to verses 6 to 11, there are two points that, uh, that this section can be divided into. First of all, in verses 6 to 8, Paul gives us an exposition of God's love. Look what he says. For when we were yet without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet peradventure for a good man some would even dare to die. But God commended his love towards us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So, so God loved us when we were sinners. That's his point. How is it thinking? How can we ever think now that if God loved us when we were sinners, now that we are sons, that we even love us less so that we become lost again? That's the argument he's using. If you don't understand what Paul is arguing, you'll never appreciate the depth of what Paul is saying. And that's why I say we must, must be very, very careful. We don't just read the Bible glibly without understanding what has come before, what is coming after, and what's the theme that Paul is dealing with. And the second thing that Paul does in verses 9 to 10 is to draw certain deductions because of God's love. And he points out three things because of God. Because of God's love for me, Paul says, I will be saved from the wrath of God. You find that in verse number 9. Much more. Being now justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath through him. So there's no wrath for me. No wrath for me. That's one of the deductions. I'm absolved of divine wrath now that God has shown this love to me. Second deduction is in verse number 10. For if when we were yet enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more being reconciled, we shall be saved. By his life. I will not only face the wrath of God. That's never going to happen. But I'm also going to be saved. Eternally. Because of the life of God's son. That's another deduction. And then thirdly. In verse number 11 he says. And not only so. But we also joy in God. Because we will not face the wrath of God. Because we'll be saved by his life. Paul said we should be rejoicing and joining God. We of all people should be happy people. Let me ask you a question. What does the man in the world have to live for? Well, we were coming down uh, tonight. And Joe turned around and said, Daddy, 
We just thought, he said, Daddy, you know, these people, oh, I know what happened. We stopped by the stoplight and we saw this poster about some, some uh, party or dance they're going to have, I think in April, already advertising. <laughs> and, he said, and I said, Joe, that's the world for you. They don't have anything to live for. So they go from one party to the next. So three months before the, the party began, you got to advertise it. Because the earthlings that we've got today, they have no reason for living. All they're living for party, for party, for party. And then Rhoda said, but you know, these things cost something, uh, $200, $50, $60. But I, I said to them, but they don't have anything to live for. So they must spend what they got on what, they, what, what makes them move. But as Christians, we don't have to go from party to party. We don't have to waste two hundred dollars, one hundred fifty dollars to to get up and and uh, dance up and keep all kind of commotion. We don't need that, See? because we joy in God. Why? There's no wrath for us, and we shall be saved through His life. See? So we have all people on planet Earth. We should be the most joyful and the most delightful people to be around. The problem is we are not. And that is the dilemma that God is faced with. That he has a people on planet earth that is not attractive. They don't advertise him very well. See? Consequently, uh, we have this problem of getting people to the faith. Look, I cannot emphasize too strongly, and I've said this frequently, that the Bible is about truth. And the central focus of truth is the mind. The way God deals with your emotions is not to, to go directly to your emotions. God goes to your emotions through your mind. As your mind comprehends truth, your emotions are moved. See? And I've said this more than once. Any pastor that goes directly to your emotions by telling you stories to make you laugh, and to make you giggle, and, and bypasses your mind, he's a demagogue. He's abusing your emotions. And that is why you find the Apostle Paul, when he wants to move the people to elation and, and, and uh, to, to excitement, the Apostle Paul appeals to truth. Because truth can only appeal to the mind. And as the mind is touched, the emotions are stirred. That's the biblical method. The worldly method is to get your emotions, but they never touch your mind. So you never learn anything. Nothing sticks there because there's nothing to stick between the two ears. See? And it's vulgar for any preacher to approach the, God, the word of God in that way. We have to understand we're dealing in the realm of truth. And truth can only appeal to the mind. So therefore when Paul is dealing with believers, he goes to their mind. And he, he's, he, he's saying that the Holy Spirit who's the agent of enlightenment. When the Holy Spirit en enlightens you and illuminates you in regards to truth. It must produce some kind of excitement in your life if it is real and authentic. So Paul never played with people's emotions. And Paul was chiefly concerned about informing their minds that they grasp the truth so that it would affect the emotions at a deeper level. And this is what Paul is doing here in this text. I remember some time ago uh, reading the story of a preacher who was asked a question. And the question he was asked was this. 
of all the things in your life that you've read, what is the one thing, what's the one thing that most overwhelmed you? And his response was very quick. He said, of all the things I've read, the one thing that really overwhelmed me is the fact that God loves me. I discovered that God loves me. That has overwhelmed me. And that's why Paul is spending some time now to say to the believers, one of the surest ways you can have surety and certainty of where you stand with God and that you're eternally secure is to grasp this love that God has that is so overwhelming, so deep. And Paul is going to explain in his words uh, how deep this love is. I want to say that uh, Romans chapter 5 verse 6 to verse 9 is the John 3.16 of the pastoral epistles. It's really a, a real fine exposition of biblical love. And uh, clearly Paul is elaborating on this love in verse 16 and following. Uh, by the way, in a real sense, what Paul says in verse 6 to 9, he's already said in chapter 3. You remember what he said in chapter 3? Look uh, with me please at chapter 3, verse uh, 24 to 26. In chapter 3, verse 24, he said, Being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that's in Christ Jesus, whom God has set forth to be a propitiation to faith in his blood, to declare his righteousness for the remission of sins that are passed through the forbearance of God, to declare, I say at this time, his righteousness, that he might be just and justifier of them that believe in Jesus. The only difference between uh, chapter 5, verse 6 to 8, and chapter 3, verse 26 to verse 27, is that the language is slightly different, but the theme is the same. The theme is that God loves you so much that God provided Christ to be the one to redeem you, to provide you righteousness so that you, you are righteous before God. That's the same theme that Paul is using in chapter 5. But here's the difference. In chapter 3, Paul's emphasis is to point out there's no other way, no other way to salvation. Only Jesus. He became the propitiation. There's no other way. But in chapter 5, Paul is not talking about there's no other way. Paul is now explaining the, the motive behind God doing what he did in chapter 3. That it was out of love that God did what he did in chapter 3. So the emphasis now has shifted. Not to showing that Christ is exclusively the only way to God. But in this chapter, Paul is now explaining that it is love that moved God to do what he did. So the same theme... But a different emphasis. So Paul's purpose is quite different in this section. Here's a is to show you how God's gratuitous love devised a plan to bring about your great salvation that he explains in chapter number three. So this is where we are. Paul wants you to know very clearly. God's love, and once you grasp the heightened depth of God's love, Paul is convinced you will be sure and certain in respect to your salvation. This is another argument he's using. He's already given you five arguments, but he's still going to give you another one now, see, to talk about the extent and the depth of God's love and how this should make you feel sure and certain 
that you as a believer will enjoy his eternal salvation that's offered in Christ Jesus. So how then does God's love do this? Go back to chapter 5 and let me point out a few principles that I think that are important. The first thing I would like to say to you in this section, the first principle that comes out, is that Paul wants us to understand that our salvation is entirely dependent on God the Father and his love for us. Look at verse number 8. But God what? Commendeth his love towards us. You know, the careless tendency that we sometimes forget. And one of the things that happens to us is, and I think we do it rather inadvertently. We create the idea that there's some kind of a dichotomy or some kind of a schizophrenia between God the Father and God the Son. We, we somehow make it seem as though that God is so reluctant to forgive us and to love us. So what Jesus Christ has to do is that he somehow is there pleading. God forgive them. God love them. That is sometimes the inference we gather from how we, we preach. That Jesus stands there saying, don't condemn them, though the Father is reluctant. But that's not what Paul is saying. Paul is saying, even before Jesus came, God loved you. God commended himself to us in that while we were yet sinners. He loved us. So what the Apostle Paul is trying to establish here is that God is not reluctant to redeem the sinner. We got to understand that God is very, uh, God is very concerned that the sinner be saved. And Paul wants us to understand that this redemption did not begin with Jesus. This redemption began with God the Father and his love for us. This is where salvation ultimately begins. Now I know sometimes this is misunderstood because we have to emphasize the redemptive work of Christ on our behalf. And clearly, clearly, we begin in verse number 6. He talks about Christ dying for us. But then that dying for us leads back to the fact that it is God that commanded his love and sent his son. So the first thing we got to understand about God's love is that our salvation began with God's love for us. Not with Christ's death. Long before his death, it was God's love that sent his son. And by the way, there are many verses of scripture that says that. We quote John chapter 3 verse 16. For God so loved the world that he gave, he gave his only begotten son. First John chapter 4 verse 9. In this was manifested the love of God towards us. In that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And because he sent his only begotten son into the world. And then in Corinthians chapter 5 it reads, God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself. It is all God the Father. Began with him. The Apostle Paul is deeply concerned. Deeply concerned. That we understand that our redemption begins first of all with God. And here's it. Here's the the thing that Paul was under. If God loved us before we we were even saved. When we were sinners. If God loved us and he sent his son to die for us. How now that he's made us his sons and his daughters. That we should ever doubt. That he would have less love for us now that we are sons than we have when we were sinners. And therefore we become damned because of something that's happened. I told you this morning that Paul is a man of logic. He's a man of reason. 
And when you begin to grasp Paul's argument, you begin to see quite clearly how you ought to rejoice that you are in the kingdom of God, you're God's child, and nothing can pluck you out of his hand. That's a certainty you can have as a believer. So I want to say this night, there is no conflict or no incompatibility or no schizophrenia between God the Father and God the Son. It's not as though God is reluctant to forgive us or to pardon us. In fact, God loved us before even Christ was sent. And that's the basic principle that Paul wants to lay down in this passage. Second principle. Number two, God loved us when we were helpless and lost. Notice the text in verse number six. For when we were yet, what? Without strength. In due time, Christ died for the ungodly. What Paul is now trying to show you, the depth to which God loved us by showing us the character of the people that he died for. And Paul mentions three terms to describe us before we were saved. Three terms. He said, number one, when we were without strength. We had no strength when he, he brought Christ to save us. Number two, when we were ungodly. We didn't love God. And number three, when we were sinners. Deliberate rebels. That's the kind of people Christ died for. That was our character before we got saved. So the Apostle Paul is saying to us that when God found us, we were helpless. Totally helpless. And were it not for God, there's not a single person in here tonight that would ever have known, come to faith and trust in Jesus Christ apart from God's intervention in our lives. Sometimes we want to give credit to ourselves and pat ourselves on the back. But no credit belongs to you, sir. Credit belongs to God. He's the one that interrupted your life. He's the one that you came to a crossroad in your life and he stopped you. Even when you didn't want to be stopped. He stopped you. And now you're marvelously transformed and changed because of a work he has done in your life. This is not something you do. This is not self-help. This is God's power. So Paul is saying here that when God found us, we were helpless. We were in a deplorable state. When God sent his son, and we were in a precarious condition in our pre-conversion state. And uh, Paul says, uses the word without strength. Now, I want to elaborate on that for just a moment. What does it mean when the Bible says that when God found us, we were without strength? I want to suggest three things tonight. Number one. When Paul said that we were without strength, I want to say in the first case, Paul is saying we were without the ability to save ourselves. That's the term that Paul used. He calls attention to the fact that we had no spiritual ability to turn to him apart from his work in our lives. Theologians call that total depravity. That unless God becomes the first mover, nobody gets saved. That God has to do something in your life, in my life, to be saved. We were without the ability. We lacked the capacity. We were incapacitated. We had no ability in ourselves. And we were completely impotent in regards to where we were when God found us. 
Now what does it mean, pastor, when you say that we didn't have any ability? Well, let's see what the Bible says about that. Number one, you didn't have the ability to understand spiritual truth before God opened your eyes to truth. How do I know that? Well, what does it say in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14? The natural man understandeth not the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness unto him, because they are spiritually discerned. So the natural man lacks comprehension. He lacks understanding. He cannot grasp the meaning of scripture. I don't care how brilliant he is in terms of intellectual qualifications. I don't care how many universities he's been to. I don't care how many diplomas line his wall. I don't care how many recognition he's gotten. If he's outside of Jesus Christ, that man cannot understand spiritual truth. Why? It is spiritually discerned. And then Paul explained, it's the spirit of God in us that opens the truth to us. So when Paul said we're without ability, it didn't mean that we didn't have any strength, physical strength. But Paul is saying, we were intellectually handicapped. We could not understand the truth. Look, there are two things necessary for the understanding of spiritual truth. Two things. One is, you have to be quickened by the spirit. The word means to make alive. That's why the Bible describes the man who said Jesus Christ as, as dead. Dead in trespasses and sin. So far as his spirit is concerned, it is disconnected with God. So he needs to be quickened. A light bulb needs to be turned on in him so he begins to understand truth. So there needs to be a spiritual quickening. And number two, there needs to be the Holy Spirit. To bring about that quickening. We don't have time to elaborate. On John chapter 3. Paul. uh, John meets the. Nicodemus. And he is told. That unless a man is born again. He cannot. Enter the kingdom of God. He's also told that a man is born, he cannot understand the kingdom of God. And here's a religious man who's puzzled. What do you mean I can't understand these things? And that's the religious people today. You tell them language like this, and they're highly offended. Highly offended. Highly offended. As a matter of fact, if they could box you, they would box you. If you would tell them words like this. But then, of course... Our Lord explained to him, the wind blows wherever it goes, wherever it listeth. And thou canst not tell where the wind goes or where it comes. And then he says, so is he that is born of the Spirit. And what are you saying to that? The Holy Spirit moves in mysterious ways. He bypasses one person in this pew and that person. He goes to another person in the pew. And he begins to deal with that person. It's a mystery. What he bypasses one and he goes to another. But his work has to be done in our lives before we could ever be converted. We must be convicted. We must come to grasp what God teaches in his word. The mind must be illuminated. And that is only done when the spirit is quickened by the spirit of God. And then the light comes on. And then we begin to say, aha, now I understand. Now I understand. You notice as well. That in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 3 and 4, Paul goes even deeper into understanding this whole matter of understanding. Paul says, if our gospel be hid, 
It is hid to them that are what? Anybody knows? That are lost. And then he explains what it means to be lost. Whom the God of this world have blinded their minds. That they cannot believe the gospel of Christ. They're blinded. Now Paul's point is this. When you were in a state of without strength. You had no ability to understand divine truth. Then the gospel came to you and God opened your eyes to the truth so that you began to understand and you believed. Now if God did that while you were an enemy of his and he loved you so much to open your eyes then, how is it conceivable that now he's your son, you're his son, he will abandon you? How is that conceivable? So he loved you while you were a sinner more than he loved you now that you're a son. That is why I say to you, unless you understand what Paul is teaching in this context, you never understand that Paul is now dealing with certainty and surety. This is another proof that we are eternally secure before God. It has to do with God's overwhelming love in the believer's life. But there's something else I would like to say about our inability. He said that we were without strength. And I said that the first thing is that we didn't have the ability. Not only the fact that our understanding, we were not able to understand the truth. But could I say this? In our unsaved state, we were not able to please God. Before you were saved, you were not able to please God. Man in his fallen state cannot please God. The best attempts that man need does. The Bible says when a man outside of Jesus Christ presents his best to God, God said it is all filthy rights. And he can't understand that. Because even his good is tarnished by his bad motives. He's trying to buy favor with God. So even though he does the good thing, the right thing, his motive is wrong and God says like filthy rags. So it's not only a matter that we didn't have the ability to understand, but we didn't have the capacity to please God. And again, I repeat, men do not like to be told this, but it's the truth. You know, the great apostle Paul wrestled with this whole matter himself. Paul thought he was a pretty good guy before he came to Christ. If you go to Philippians chapter 3, you'll find that Paul takes out his resume and he says to you, man, was you anybody like me? And Paul goes on, he lists, circumcised the eighth day. Paul goes on the, of the stock of the Hebrews. I'm a Jew. He said, of the tribe of Benjamin, I belong to the first royal tribe. Remember that Saul came from Benjamin. It's where the kings come from. Then Paul goes on to say, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, there's no Jew like me. I'm Jew of the Jews. Then he said, a Pharisee, I am the highest religious man in the land. And then Paul says, concerning zeal, man, I had so much zeal for God, I was even destroying God, I didn't even know that, I was destroying the church. And then Paul says, and get this, touching the law, blameless. When I look at the law, I saw, I cannot attribute blame to me. But then he said these words. But now he said, I count all this but dumb, 
garbage, stool, feces. See? That's all, all this righteousness I had because when I came and I understand that what God requires of me is this. If perfect righteousness like God is perfectly righteous. And the only one who is perfectly righteous like God the Father is God the Son. And the righteousness I need God provides to his Son. So now Paul says, and be not found having my own righteousness in myself, which is by the law. But the righteousness comes through faith in Jesus Christ. He said, everything else is done now. So my inability, not only related to the fact that I lacked understanding, but it also related to the fact that there was nothing I could do in my lost condition to please God. This is why Romans chapter 8 and verse 8 says these words, and Paul wrote them. He says, they that are in the flesh cannot please God. I repeat, they that are in the flesh cannot please God. You see what a dilemma we're in? Think for just a moment. No ability to understand divine truth. No ability to please God because I don't have a righteousness that can match the righteousness of God. And the best I try is still not to his part, his standard. Now, while I was in that condition, Christ died for me. Imagine that. He loved me so much. He died for me. What love? What love? And that love is manifested by the depths of the type of people, the character type of people that he died for. Be sure you join us again next time here on Sermons of Grace as Pastor Murphy shows us more important principles about the depth of God's love. If you'd like to contact Pastor David Murphy or Grace Baptist Church, please call 268-462-4230 or visit during one of their service times. Sunday school is at 9 a.m., Sunday morning at 10 a.m., Sunday evening at 7 p.m., or Thursday evenings at 7 p.m. Grace Baptist Church is located on Rowan Henry Street in Gambles Terrace, Antigua.